Good morning, Centennial Covenant Church. I hope you are enjoying this definitely chilly, unexpected fall morning. And I am happy to be with you today, bringing you the word. And so if you are with us today via live stream, we are continuing our series called One. And this series takes us through the entire book of Acts as we look as to what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the church when things are new, when things are different, when things are uncertain? And so last week, we looked at faith and conflict within the church. How should we approach conflict within the church? And then uh, today, we are looking at what about conflict or opposition that comes from outside of the church. So if you are home with us today, I'm so happy that you're with us. And if you have your Bibles, please open to Acts chapter 6. And while you're opening your Bibles, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what it, what it means to be a Bible teacher sometimes. Uh, many of you know that I teach Bible at a local Christian high school. And when I tell people that I'm a Bible teacher, I get a variety of reactions. So I have learned to sort of ease people into this final revelation of what I do for a living. So typically, I say, when people ask me, so what do you do? I typically say, well, I'm a teacher. Oh, that's great. What school? Where? And then I'll say the name of my school, and depending on where you're at, can be a bit complicated by itself. And then they'll say, and what do you teach? And then I say, oh, I teach Bible. And they just, I, I don't say that. That's what they think. I say, oh, I teach Bible. I'm a Bible teacher. And they're like, oh, that's nice. They don't know how to respond. For like a split second, you can see it in their faces. They don't know what to do with that. What do you do with someone who's all in with regards to their faith, with regards to their religion? I'm sure that pastors like Carl and uh, David and others get this as well. When you say that you're a pastor, perhaps uh, seminary professors, but when you say that you're all in with Jesus, it can cause some awkwardness. And I start with a lighthearted story because sometimes opposition can simply be an exchange of ideas where people just disagree with one another. But then opposition can also increase and become something much harder to handle. So today we're talking about what, what happens when we experience opposition because of our faith. So our text today is Acts 6. So um, if you could follow along with me as I read Acts 6, verses 8 through 10. Now Stephen a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Last week, we were introduced to Stephen, 
During Carl's sermon, he was one of the men who was in charge of the equitable distribution of food to the widows and orphans. And Carl explained that this was an injustice happening within the church. And Stephen was one of the men selected to take care of this injustice. But in this passage, we see something new about Stephen. We see that he is doing signs and wonders. That's incredible. He's doing signs and wonders. And then from that, those signs and wonders, he's explaining the source of those signs and wonders. He's preaching the gospel. And what that has done, it has created this situation where there are those from a specific synagogue who are engaging him in debate. But they're beginning to get a little bit frustrated. Because you see, I don't know if you've ever debated with someone who is filled with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, but you're not going to get very far. You're not going to convince of your own position. And so they have grown frustrated. But this frustration is going to lead to a different outcome. It's going to escalate. The opposition is going to escalate. So read with me what happens in the rest of the chapter. I'm starting with verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Notice the shift from simple frustration over an exchange of ideas to now a much more violent opposition. They secretly persuaded False accusations are made. They stirred up the people. They seized Stephen. They produced false witnesses who gave false testimony. What we begin to learn from this text is that as followers of Jesus, we will face opposition. I mean, Stephen was doing signs and wonders. I don't know what's more convincing than signs and wonders, and yet... All that this did was breed within those who refused to accept the teachings of Stephen. It bred in them violence, a sense of self-threat. We have to understand that we will face opposition. You see, the problem that the Jews were experiencing is that what Stephen had to say went against their very culture. Look at what he was falsely accused of. Destroying the temple? Getting rid of Moses' laws? You see, the way of Christ is threatening. The gospel of Jesus is counter-cultural. In Stephen's time, Christ threatened the very foundation of the Jewish religion. You see, their hope lay in obedience to the law 
and their hope was placed in a location, their temple. And before we get too critical about the Jews during this time, what about us today? Is the gospel countercultural? Is the way of Jesus counter-American? You see, in Stephen's time, Jesus threatened the, the very foundations of the Jewish experience, but for us, he also threatens the very foundation of what we as Americans idealize. A couple of weeks ago, as I was helping my seniors understand the cultural background to the book of Ruth, I asked them to join me in an imagination exercise. I said, what if aliens from space just dropped into the United States and they had two days to figure out American culture? What would they see? What would they think Americans value? What opinion would they form about American culture, American ideals? And they had a very lively, spirited conversation amongst themselves. And then we made a list, a very comprehensive list. And let me tell you, these young people know exactly what's up. And so they began to tell me, Mrs. Sutton, we think that one of the first things they're going to notice is just how materialistic we are. Oof. And another thing we know is that, you know, we're so pro-America, America, and how we're obsessed with the pursuit of happiness, even at dangerous cost. And of course, there's the desire and need and pursuit of stability, safety, comfort. And you can see that sometimes our American values do not equate with kingdom values. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said, Oh, blessed are the poor. Instead of political preeminence, blessed are the meek. Instead of the pursuit of happiness, blessed are those who mourn. And instead of striving for safety, stability, comfort, Blessed are the persecuted. You see, the way of Christ should not be confused for the American way. Please do not misunderstand me. I am thankful to be here in America enjoying my religious freedoms. But we cannot confuse American values with kingdom values. To be a defender of the faith like Stephen, we must be, first of all, a disciple of Christ not a disciple of this world and of our culture. And so Stephen is given the opportunity to defend himself, but he doesn't defend himself. Instead, he walks the Sanhedrin and all those at the Sanhedrin through a message of how God has been at work. And so he promotes the kingdom. He promotes Jesus, not himself. He doesn't make excuses for himself. And and I'm just going to summarize because it's most of chapter 7. But he says God's plans are not confined to the boundary of Israelite lands. And true worship is not confined to the temple. And he gave examples of the burning bush 
and the tabernacle. You see, he's, he's, a, he's moving towards helping them understand that, that their culture does not trump God's plans. And then he gets personal. He says God's people have a long history of rejecting God's sent ones. From Moses to Joseph to the prophets and to the long-awaited righteous one, Jesus. And so I want to jump in on verse 51 where the tone changes and Stephen is now the convictor. And he says, you stiff necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. You who should have known better have rejected God's plan. You who should have known better have resisted the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to his own people. He understands them, he knows them, and he understands what it is that they are refusing. They are refusing God's plan. And I think that we can look at this passage and we can move in two different directions. We can feel very superior. Oh, that's them. We're us. We now know. We have the whole New Testament. We know where we're going. Or we can look at this passage and ask us the question, are we being stiff-necked ourselves? Are we relying on old ways and resisting the guidance of the Holy Spirit? That's quite the accusation. You see, for those of us who have been following Christ for some time, we must, be, we must continue to be open to the Spirit's leading and not rely on old ways. Good grief, look at what we're doing. We're live streaming. We had to transition. We had to transition and rely on the discernment of the Holy Spirit. How do we do church together? How do we do fellowship with one another? How do we live out our Christian walk during these uncertain and unprecedented times? Are you and I being stiff-necked or are we following, seeking, discerning how the Holy Spirit is leading us during these times? Let us not also be guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit. And I do want to just pause and talk to those of you who have been part of the community of Centennial Covenant Church and you have been interested in Christ. You've been seeking to know more about Jesus, but up until this point, you have been resistant to accepting Christ. And if that is you today, don't, don't, don't reject Jesus. Don't reject him. That's the whole message of, of Stephen's sermon. Don't reject Christ. Instead, acknowledge your brokenness and place your faith in the one 
who has been given by God as a solution to your brokenness. And if that's you today, if today is the day that you transition from unbelief into belief, could you give us a call? Could you let us know so we can walk through the next steps with you? Don't resist the Holy Spirit. That message is both for us who have been followers of Christ for a long time and for those of us who maybe we start our journey today. You can imagine that Stephen, mm, Stephen has to end his sermon quickly. Because look at how the Sanhedrin, look at how they react to Stephen. We're now in Acts 7, starting with verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen died because of Christ. And this is not the feel-good message I would have liked to have brought to you today. I'm sure, like me, you do not want to hear about this. In fact, uh, we can say that it's just not a me problem or a you problem, it's a culture problem. Our American culture is just not into suffering. We spend a lot of money avoiding suffering. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that Jesus does not have a problem with suffering. We have to build up our theology of suffering. Because you know what? Jesus said to his disciples, take up the cross and follow me. And he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. As Christians, we will face opposition for our faith. Though we in the USA benefit from the protections offered to us because of the right to freedom of religion, Let us not forget that our brothers and sisters around the world, a vast majority of them, face different kinds of persecution every day. And if you get together with your life group or on your own this week and you go through the study guide for this week, please click on the link that will take you directly to a report, a latest report on what Christians around the world are suffering the kinds of persecution. It gives data, facts, statistics on what is happening to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We must stand in solidarity with them, praying for them, interceding for them, promoting justice for them, advocating for them. Let us not forget that for some, Stephen's moment is very much a reality even today. But for you and I, I am not worried that at any minute I am going to be in any way dragged out of this church. 
or that any form of violent retaliation will happen to me. I do not live in that terror for which I give thanks to God. But we must be prepared. We must be prepared. Prepared to defend our faith through word and deed. Prepared to die for the one who died for us. We cannot control how others will react to the gospel. We just, we just can't control that. We cannot assume that we will always enjoy the rights and privileges of freedom of religion. Who Jesus is and the way of Christ is in conflict with the ways of this world. You and I might not be stoned to death, but stones will be thrown. Stones of a different nature. Perhaps the stones of ridicule. The stones of isolation. The stones of temptation. The stones of rejection for simply being a follower of Jesus. And as we are seeing more and more in our culture, the stones of violence and cruelty and the stones of greed. We will have to deal with our own stones. And we must, in a certain way, learn to die. I'm not trying to be morbid. And I am definitely not promoting a false gospel of suffering for suffering's sake. But we need to understand that we live for Christ, not for ourselves. And that we need to, in moments of opposition, understand that we have a chance and an opportunity to show our loyalty to Christ. How should the church face times of opposition? With loyalty. Loyalty not to the old ways. Loyalty not to our American ways, but loyalty to Christ to the one who has already died. And because he already died is the one who gives us the true life, the abundant life that we can only receive in Christ. So if Stephen's death was just about the glory of suffering, then this would have been a tragic, empty gesture. But notice Stephen's focus in verse 56. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. His eyes are on Jesus. His focus is on the risen Savior. His loyalty was not to the kingdom of this world, but to the kingdom of heaven. And in that moment, he receives this revelation that everything he knew to be true was indeed true. And in that moment of tremendous violence, he knows exactly who the real reality is. And in that moment, is able to to show the way of Christ by praying a prayer of of a tremendous compassion and humility to the ones who are literally killing him. 
he cries out to God and says, do not hold this sin against them. How? How can Stephen make such a plea with his final breaths? I suspect Stephen has been practicing dying to himself for a while now. And his loyalty is completely Christ's. He is loyal to the person of Christ and to the way of Christ. As I've been processing this sermon, I've been asking myself, am I this loyal? Can I truly claim to be loyal to Jesus in this way and to his ways over my own ways? And there is a beautiful prayer that the Holy Spirit has used since my late 20s to do a good work in me a work of resurrection into the true life. But it is a prayer that asks for small deaths. And I would like for you to read this with me, alongside me. This will be a responsorial prayer. I will read the white, and you will read the yellow with me. Please follow along with me. Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to above others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being falsely accused, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. 
that others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. This is an impossible prayer. I pray this prayer in faith, not in confidence. And several nights ago, as I was meditating and reflecting on the story of Stephen, and as I came to the reality that this prayer that we just prayed is a hope, I think a spirit-led hope, I wrote the following as a reflection on the back of a medical notice. I am no martyr, but there are parts of me that need to die for Christ. And maybe, maybe, if I practice these small deaths, then if and when my time comes to give my life for my Savior, it will not seem like such a sacrifice.